0: This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we discuss media framings and public response to the war on drugs with Michael Rossino, assistant professor of sociology at Molloy College on Long Island, New York. Michael is author of the book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media, published by Rutledge in March 2021. Michael has published several articles on drug policy, Racial Politics and Human Rights. Our conversation was recorded on June twenty fourth, 2021. Michael, welcome to the Annex.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. Well,
0: Michael, we're excited to have you to talk about your work on the drug war, how the media uh, presents the drug war. And your book and, and other of your work comes from the cultural studies tradition in dialogue with folks like Stuart Hall. So, What work do you see journalists and and the media more broadly doing when they engage the debate over drug policy?
1: So the first thing that I really draw from the cultural studies tradition is the idea of the relationship between established institutions, elites in society, people that hold political and economic power, and their ability to define the terms or limit the terms of a certain debate around a given social or policy issue. So Stuart Hall talks about this in terms of what he calls primary and secondary institutional definers. And to give you like a really concrete example of this, when the news media, for instance, or um, even a major uh, newspaper outlet, you know, something like the New York Times or Washington Post, when they're reporting on a prominent issue, let's say just because it's relevant you know the current push for drug policy reform in the united states or let's say discussions over crime rates and crime control strategies there is a structured relationship between those media producers and powerful authority figures in our society such as police officers government officials political leaders If they do talk to intellectuals, it's likely intellectuals that are coming from a maybe I would say like a more centrist sort of technocratic position that's maybe coming out of, um, you know, Ivy Leagues or or, um, that kind of Harvard Washington consensus kind of space. And so because those are go to sources, those established and powerful individuals and institutions, even as media producers, journalists are attempting to present just the facts, so to speak. We tend to have a media that that presents itself as being very fact based, you know, without getting into all of the more complexities of it. But that is one of the ways that media producers attempt to present themselves as unbiased, that they're just sort of giving the official story and presenting these quotes and snippets and talking points from these established institutions. What that does, though, is that when we have these public debates... And increasingly, particularly since the emergence of digital space, we've seen this taken off exponentially, but most of our public debates take place through the media. They are mass-mediated public debates. So when an issue is hotly contested, the media serves as, as the primary venue where people are getting information, people are participating in the debate – And uh, people are becoming informed. And essentially what this does is it allows us to understand why in certain debates, certain public policy debates, certain perspectives, certain uh, solutions, certain concepts and understandings are disproportionately represented. And why it is that certain perspectives, even if they are derived from, let's say, you know, the experiences of community members on the ground who are experiencing a problem, people who are studying the perspective from maybe a more critical perspective, or even um, activists who are working towards social change, that those uh, voices tend to be marginalized. and oftentimes those perspectives and voices, Um, are encouraged to sort of fit into the media's preconceived notion of what's already at stake, why the particular issue is problematic, what the potential, at most, maybe two or three possible outcomes or, or solutions are. And so by identifying that these powerful, these power dynamics play a role in these public debates, in recognizing that these public debates are shaping Policy. They're shaping the consent of people in a society. Um, they're shaping, you know, public support for certain policies and certain solutions. I found that mapping out this connection between, you know, in my case with this with this study, drug policy, the broader debate that we've been having as a society, particularly since the 1980s about certain approaches to drug control strategies, as well as the role of these power dynamics in shaping what types of narratives are proposed. And so one of the findings, for instance, that I see as really being well explained by this dynamic in the book, drug policies have been absolutely used as a mechanism of racial oppression and racialized social control that most of our current drug policies that are punitive and militaristic have been shaped by racialized moral panics that depict non-white people in various you know, contexts as particularly dangerous and threatening and, and associating drugs with them. That despite all of that um, available evidence and information, there was what I noticed uh, as a, a racial silence throughout the debate. So when I looked at newspaper manuscripts, dating back all the way to the 1980s. And as I was coding for, you know, what are the different arguments? What are the themes? What are the discourses? Even among, and particularly among um, people who are critical of the war on drugs, people who are advocating for alternative approaches, such as legalization, or, you know, a more more public health-centered approach, there tended to be a sort of discounting of The problem of racial oppression, the problem of racism in society and cultural racism and institutional and systemic forms of racism in the legal system as being seen as sort of a viable argument. So pointing out that there's some kind of bias or some kind of unequal outcome only does so much. But what was actually missing from this public debate was all of the evidence All of the historical evidence, legal evidence, sociological and criminological evidence that has amassed and the people that have been advocating for public awareness of these issues that really ties drug policies in the United States to racism, racial oppression and racial inequality in really clear ways. And so that was an extremely minimized part of the debate. Only about less than 6% of the overall total claims that were critical of the war on drugs throughout my entire data set, you know, spanning about 30 years of newspaper content, mentioned this at all. And an extremely minuscule amount even mentioned any type of racial animus being part of our drug policies, part of the motivating force behind them. Or mentioning that there is some type of institutionalized or structural racism or or discrimination taking place to account for these outcomes. And so that was one of the things that I really noticed. So if we think about the terms of the debate for something like drug policy, one of the things that we can we we can think about is, you know, what is the media assuming about who is in the audience and what types of claims are going to resonate with them? So they're obviously assuming some type of audience that is not deeply concerned with issues of racial injustice and oppression, that those types of points don't necessarily have salience. And instead, the debate becomes much more about concepts like effective social control, fear of generally racialized violence and crime that is oftentimes connected with the drug war. So... One of the most common frames that I saw for in the media of how how criticisms of the war on drugs were depicted is that it is a dysfunctional policy, but more so than that, that it is a dysfunctional policy because it does not do enough to control racialized threatening groups. It is actually uh, ironically using a racialized moral panic about urban gangs or foreign drug smugglers. You can see how there's some racially coded language there, and the addition of those kinds of, of, of unnecessary adjectives that that sort of racist logic was being reinforced even among those who advocate for drug policy reform in the mass media. What is underreported and what I think you know is sort of an inconvenient truth about a drug use and drug policy in the United States is that the majority of drug smuggling and drug crimes in the United States the best available evidence suggests that they're actually committed by white people people of, of European origin and that drug use rates of drug use are fairly consistent across racial groups so there's actually no valid way of assuming that the you know even these crime and violence problems that are pointed to are necessarily um, need to be associated with people of color. I happened to stumble across just a really interesting case study in that nexus of power, racial politics, and culture and cultural representation that I think really allowed me to expand on some of these insights, provide them a more contemporary context, and really hopefully, you know, give readers some food for thought in terms of, you know, some of these talking points and news stories that they're seeing on a regular basis to even boost, you know, their media literacy, especially for for students and in a general audience. You really
0: opened up here, you know, quite a bit of the heart of the findings of, of your book and the kinds of conceptual resources that you're using to understand what you found. Let's take a step back for a second and give folks an overview of your analytical approach or your research methods, how you went about this work?
1: Sure. So the first thing that I did, actually, this 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 whole idea originally came from just reading a lot of the work in these areas. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the cultural studies work and, and some work from from Howard Becker. And, and I've always been deeply fascinated with drug policy and you know the the imbalances and how it's enforced i adopted this approach called ethnographic content analysis and this is what i use both for the newspaper content as well as the online comments in order to collect my data i essentially wanted to cast the widest possible net and it actually just worked out that newspapers in the united states that are easily accessible that have been digitized Go back to about the early 80s if you use something like the LexisNexis archives. That also happens to be around the time that the war on drugs actually really started to take off as sort of this very specific militarized strategy. So like Ronald Reagan, you know, his policies that he kicked off in the early 80s, it really coincided with that. So I really lucked out with that time frame.
0: Michael, uh, you know I'm I'm old, so I remember the "Just Say No" campaigns of Nancy Reagan, and we had those green buttons with the white, white letters on them. So this is for those of us who are of a certain age, the moral panic around uh, drug use, you know, crack cocaine and and other substances is familiar ground to us. But I interrupted you, so go forward with your method.
1: Absolutely. So the moral panic around crack cocaine when President Reagan in 1981 signed the Military Cooperation with Policing Act that really helped funnel military equipment and strategies and and totally sort of reformed the way that drug policies were discussed and and thought about. So I I really lucked out in terms of that time frame, in terms of what data was available. So essentially, I used the search terms war on drugs. I found the widest possible data set I could, I tried to include everything, including op-eds, journalistic reporting, letters to the editor, basically any type of manuscript that appeared in any type of newspaper that had been digitized. And I wanted to cast as wide of a net as possible for very specific reasons, because as I think a lot of qualitative researchers like myself, or mixed methods researchers, or, or meet people who study media or documents know, there's these really thorny questions that you get into around what's your population, questions of generalization. And when I stumbled upon this technique called um, ethnographic content analysis, basically what it does is it allows for a different way of generalizing your findings, a different way of trying to understand your findings, because essentially what you're doing is is you're looking for patterns of meaning in the classic ethnographical sense through looking at the themes, discourses, and frames within media content. If I have a large enough data set, and I can also look at variations by, let's say, newspaper types or manuscript types, it allows me to make some claims about the dominant themes and frames that were likely produced over this time period. It allows me to look at if there was consistency over time. One of the most interesting things that I was able to find is, you know, I talked about racial silence and this dominant frame of like the drug war is dysfunctional, that's relying on racialized moral panics. I was very surprised that 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 theme is consistent across the data set for types of newspapers, so among local newspapers, smaller newspapers, larger distribution newspapers. It was consistent among letters to the editor, op-eds, and journalistic reporting. These similarities were kind of there across the board. So I knew that that helped me make a little bit stronger claims about generalizing to an overall side of media production. So I noticed there were certain frames that are used to critique the war on drugs— that were pretty, you know, universal across the board. So the ones that I identified were the fiscal frame, which I think many people are aware of. It's it's still used predominantly by drug reformers today, which is the idea of, you know, let's say if we legalize cannabis, that that will generate uh, tax revenue, it will generate economic stimulus, that it will be a boon to local industries, essentially sort of an economic argument alongside that sort of a libertarian argument around the amount of tax money that's spent on drug war enforcement. So there is this oft cited statistic that at a certain point, the United States surpassed a billion dollars in spending on the war on drugs. And, you know, it oftentimes gets compared to like other wars in terms of framing. So that was a major one. Another major one was just general claims about things like human rights or fairness and equality. Oftentimes, these were completely deracialized. So just pointing out that it's perhaps unfair or violating the civil liberties of individuals, this ranging from sort of more, once again, libertarian claims about privacy and civil liberties to claims about inherent human rights to claims that are maybe a little bit more class-based about, you know, at least acknowledging that there's some connection between who holds power and who tends to be arrested for drug crimes, along with this sort of dysfunctional frame. And then, you know, obviously the least common one, as I mentioned before, was pointing out sort of the racial unfairness, that there is some type of racial unfairness going on. But I even wanted to go beyond that. So within these frames, then I started to look for themes. Were there specific types of claims that were being made? Were there specific types of evidence that were being pointed to? Were there specific types of people that were making these claims? And that allowed me to understand it even a, a little bit more deeply in terms of, you know, looking at the variations within those frames. And then finally, I looked at what people who've used this method would refer to as discourses. And that is using the term discourse in a pretty specific sense, which is just sort of like, what are the overall, you know, narratives, stories that are being told what are the overall types of subject positions or plots that are coming up over and over again? And who are the like characters in these stories? So like the character of the urban violent drug dealer, the character of the foreign drug smuggler, the character of, you know, the promising white college student who gets arrested for marijuana. and Now their life is ruined. You know, these, these kind of came up over and over again. So Using that method, I think, was extremely effective. I think for students or researchers, people who are interested in doing more research in the media, it can be a really tedious process. But when you have a really useful method, something like ethnographic content analysis, it does allow for you to do it in a systematic way. I think that's particularly difficult, you know, transitioning to the internet comments. I think this is where I had to really think, you know, we live in a digital age, We live in an age where the relationship, and I discuss this in the book the relationship between mass media and audiences is so drastically reshaped by digital technology. You know, the immediacy of social media, the interactive component of like comment sections, the fact that now, I almost think of it, you know, bringing it back to Stuart Hall, like there is the primary institutional definers, those institutions, the secondary institutional definers would be like journalists, but there's almost like a third category or like tertiary definers, which is like the audience themselves interacting with it. I applied kind of a similar approach, but I had to be much more creative and pragmatic when it came to collecting internet data because... I think one of the big quandaries around researchers who do any type of work with digital media is that the data is just being produced at this kind of wild exponential rate. People are constantly posting online. And to use kind of the colloquialism that, you know, statisticians use, separating the signal from the noise becomes increasingly difficult. So essentially what I try to do is think about like, what are the specific questions that I can actually answer by looking at internet comments, because I am really interested in how audiences respond. And I think a big contribution of the book is moving beyond this traditional media framing approach and bringing it more into an understanding of digital media and digital audiences. So what I decided is some of the specific questions that I can answer is things like when certain claims appear in the media, how do audiences respond? That might give me some insight about sort of, this production and reception circuit that is you know part of how people participate in media how people form identities and make claims about themselves and others through these media practices of, of commenting and finally what are some of the ways that people are making claims around the war on drugs that don't typically appear in media out of a pragmatic need My sample is more or less like, in a sense, a a convenience sample, because what I essentially did was I tried to find major news sources that have comment sections. I tried to use a general sort of Google search for news. It's limited by the time in which I did it, which was like, I think, like 2011. I adopted the same approach of, you know, identifying frames, themes and discourses, But obviously, I tailored it more towards those types of specific questions because it's even more difficult to generalize to like the population of people who comment on the Internet. And I actually ended up finding a lot of really rich and interesting stuff. I actually think that's the longest chapter in the book because I ended up having so much to say about these Internet comments and how they help us uh, better understand like the public side and the reception side. But as I've often said, you know, in in other times I've talked about this and even in the book I mentioned this, that was probably the most difficult part because as anyone who's probably spent too much time on social media knows, reading internet comments, particularly internet comments about like a racialized topic, it's not great for your mental health. I specifically remember one year I was trying to get my analysis done because ASA was coming up. I was at like, you know, my partner's family's house and I was like, I just need to get this done. And I realized like, I better publish something out of this because I'm sitting here reading these awful internet comments over winter break and just trying to get through it. So I'm very pleased with the outcome. But, you know, I really want to emphasize how tedious, detail oriented and how time consuming, rigorous, qualitative research can
0: be. Well I think that's really good insight into the the craft of this and and as you say you can get really into the weeds in these you know in these comments sections and you know as long as your your method is you know structured and rigorous you can get some really good and valid you know findings from that in these spaces Were there super commenters? I mean, folks who just like kept coming back and maybe rehashing the same kinds of arguments. I mean, how did you deal with these folks in your data who, if there were any, who were um, really fixated on a particular issue and kind of like hammered that over and over and over again? That's something that I've witnessed in comment sections. But yes. Did you see that as well? Absolutely. Well, I think the
1: colloquialism that I see is like people who are like, quote unquote, extremely online, I'll be honest that I've even experienced this myself of kind of being pulled into the drama and the almost like frustration of getting into an argument online. And I think that drives a lot of the culture of commenting, particularly during that time period, because it was a little bit pre-algorithm. So, you know, in the same sense that like, you know, your, your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed is like so thoroughly curated now. But in comment sections, you're seeing all kinds of people that you may or may not agree with. You're seeing all kinds of opinions that might infuriate you. And actually, it's interesting because on the Huffington Post comment section, they did have this system of like denoting like who were the like super active people. I'm trying to remember what it was. It might have been something called like super commenter or like super active or something. So I did notice that. There were a lot of people who came up several times. There were a lot of sort of like chains of conversation that would sort of break off from a, the broader thing, because there was the possibility for people to respond to each other, which also allowed me to engage in a little bit more sort of like dialogue or conversation analysis approaches. So some of those longer chains of threads, I tried to break down, you know, in some of my discuss in the book, almost as a like, back and forth that people are having. But essentially, there is something really fascinating that I I am interested in, in thinking about a little bit more, which is like, what are those incentives and motivations for people to participate in these contentious conversations online? Like, what is that doing to our brains? You know, I know we all receive that like dopamine hit when you get a notification that somebody liked your post. But then there's also the feeling of like, oh, my God, somebody said something stupid on the Internet. I'm compelled to respond to it. So I did think a lot about that psychology as I was writing the book. I didn't get into it too much, but it's something that's really fascinated me. And to be honest, it's kind of reshaped how I myself engage with online content and like really thinking to myself, like, is it worth it all the time to engage every little thing? But there's definitely perverse incentives because one of the things that I also talk about in the book is like media consolidation and the role that sort of late stage corporate capitalism plays in the way that certain modes of engagement are incentivized. So it doesn't matter if commenting and getting into an argument with someone is, is making you miserable, or even, and I'm sure lots of other people have studied this, radicalizing someone politically, what actually matters in the sense of these corporations that are running these platforms is engagement, just the raw numbers of engagement. Because that means attention, that means they're getting their ads in front of people. So that was one of the things I tried to think about also from like not just a psychological perspective, but like a more structural perspective. Like what is producing this discursive economy that prioritizes and privileges like really contentious, really angry, hot takes that prioritizes argument, that prioritizes people taking really strong positions and stances? And how is that shaping, you know, our public debates? And, and even, you know, towards the end of the book, and the conclusion, I try to talk about, like, from a, a media literacy perspective, like how people can rethink their own engagement with these public debates and media, and try to engage with it in a more pragmatic way, and in perhaps a way that's a little more conducive to like, being productive. Well, that's something that I think we all kind of viscerally feel is the emotionality of of being part of, of an online digital audience, the amount of buy-in, the amount of identity uh, investment, and just the amount of like emotionality. And I think that's something that really came through when I read the data. So yeah, I I do think, you know, there probably are some people who are like super active, super glued to their screens that are, you know, also shaping this in weird ways.
0: Well, I think it's really important to think about who benefits from that high level of emotional engagement, right? And sort of the political economy of attention that others have really studied. And it's it's not an area that I am particularly well versed in, but uh, something that we might learn more about as we go through this annex experience over the next however long we do this, which hopefully is for a long time. I want to get back, I think, to the racialized aspects of the drug war, and as you said earlier, you know many people have recognized that drug policy in the United States and perhaps other places is really saturated with anti-black and brown racism right now, uh, and white supremacy more generally. How does that history of drug policy and its role in furthering white supremacy set the stage for your book?
1: I think one of the things that that first of all really came across as i was doing the more lit review you know i want to i want to make sure to contextualize and historicize all my findings is just how far back that relationship goes the the interest in white supremacy and particularly white capitalist interests aligning perfectly with these racialized moral panics going all the way back to the first drug laws in the united states so i detail racialized moral panics around opium in the 1870s that led to the first drug laws in the United States. I think more people are probably aware of maybe the reefer madness kind of thing and how Mexican migrants were scapegoated. And, you know, that racialized moral panic is a little more contemporary, but it has such a long history of repeating itself over and over again to the extent that, you know, you can look at these specific moral entrepreneurs. And I think that history is so fascinating when we think about the fact that the rise of drug reform efforts really taking hold and becoming strong in the United States, particularly in the 90s to today, where we now see so many states decriminalizing drug possession, legalizing cannabis, And actually, you know, I had a really strange experience because the day that I received my copy of the book in the mail was the same day that they announced that cannabis was legal in New York. So that was like a weird synchronicity. But what I was curious about is, obviously, drug policy, the war on drugs is deeply unpopular. It's something that actually doesn't have a lot of public support. But I think what's interesting is the underlying systemic structural components, the underlying racialized moral panics, the underlying alliance between sort of this white capitalist class on one hand and the interest in racialized social control. You know, I wanted to know to what extent are people critical of the war on drugs actually engaging that history and that, that evidence and also to what extent are they actually challenging that? Because, As other scholars have noted, you know, the early drug reform movement, particularly organizations that people might be familiar with, like Normal or the Marijuana Policy Project, they were pretty effective at changing the narrative around drug use in the United States by essentially whitening cannabis. So... In the book, what I talk about that is consistent even to today is that there is a racial empathy gap that pervades, to this day, our conversations, our public debates around the war on drugs as a justice issue or as as an issue of fairness or, or freedom that makes it so that these drug reformers that have been pretty influential... Unfortunately, what they did was they they engaged in frame alignment where they tried to depict the victims of drug prohibition as being young, promising white people or let's say white veterans who are struggling with PTSD. And in doing so, what they did is they tried to basically challenge the legitimacy of drug laws without challenging or even contesting the centuries of racial oppression, harm, damage to communities, and violence that has always been completely embedded in that. And I think right now we are living in a really interesting time because even since the book has come out, I've noticed that there are organizations and activists that are pushing really hard, oftentimes in a very grassroots way, Sometimes even, you know, in connection with sort of the recent quote unquote racial reckoning that we saw in the United States that even maybe more mainstream organizations are picking up the racial justice angle. So I'll be interested to see how that plays out. But what I was able to really connect between that those racialized moral panics and the interest alignment was that. It's still going on today. So, if we want to understand, for instance, why in certain places the legal cannabis industry is completely locking out people of color, or why the enforcement of low level drug infractions, even in places that have pretty progressive drug laws, still tends to disproportionately target Black and Latinx people, we have to understand that at the root of the problem is the issue of white supremacy racial oppression, and this sort of overwhelming interest in racialized social control. And actually, the cannabis reform laws that were passed in New York have actually, I think, been, from my perspective as someone who analyzes drug policy and interested in racial politics, have been some of the best at actually trying to make sure that they're informed by community members, Informed by the perspective of righting the wrongs of the past, that they're meant to be reparative and restorative, that they are actually about enhancing freedom and equality. So, things like making sure that low level street offenses, like just literally don't result in any arrests at all, it means that, you know, when I walk down the street in Brooklyn, it's really not uncommon to see someone smoking a joint while walking their dog, which I think has been a little, little jarring. But it's because activists have been so passionate about saying, hey, there are these industries that are going to benefit. There's all these other things that are going to benefit white elites that I think are really coming to light from drug reforms. But we can't have drug policy reform that's not also centering these core issues of the well-being of impacted communities. So another thing that they did was making sure that the tax revenue that is produced by the legal cannabis industry is going to be specifically going into the communities who were most hurt and marginalized and experienced the most violence at the hands of the police and the prison industrial complex tied to the war on drugs. I think a lot of sociology books are nervous about having a call to action, but I explicitly made sort of a, a moral and political choice to end the book with a call to action. Because I see so much promise in things that are taking place right now, in organizations and activists who are doing the work right now, that is so informed by these things that I notice through sociological analysis.
0: Sometimes when I have authors in my classes, I ask them, what would you change about the book that you've already produced? I mean, is there something that you would reconsider now or something that you would, would add?
1: Absolutely. So... Like most authors who are neurotic perfectionists, I could tell you where all of the typos are in my book. So I would probably start there. You know, I know where all of the the little minor flubs are, but I think on a more like broader conceptual level, I think that I probably would have done a little bit more to talk about the overall ideas of interest alignment and white backlash In a little bit more explicit terms to give a little bit more of a stronger sense of the racialized power relations. And also, you know, I wrote this book for maybe a little bit more of a general audience and less of a scholarly audience. So I tried hard to not get too uh, lost in the weeds or introducing concept after concept. But I think that I would have definitely engaged in the critical legal tradition a little bit more as a way of sort of explaining and understanding these dynamics as they play out. Because as you mentioned, I didn't engage with that quite as much as I probably would have if I were to do it over again. You know, I was very much focused on this relationship between media politics and racial oppression. And I think analyzing the the actual like structure of laws a little bit more would be fascinating. And actually, I collected another data set, where I actually have a large data set of congressional hearings and congressional and legal documents, specifically relating to the war on drugs, to get away a little bit from the media discourse and look at a little bit more of the political legal discourse, the discourse that's coming from how legal arguments are, have been formed and contested, as well as how People in the space of politics, particularly national politics, have engaged in these ideas and and these arguments. So, you know, I I think for like a lot of sociologists, I think my curiosity maybe outpaces my willingness to really want to sit down and code all this data. But these are all things that like, I think in an ideal world where I had a lot more time and resources, I I would definitely want to move in these directions. I felt very grateful and, and very lucky to be able to have my, my work find an audience at this time where this is really a major potential space of social transformation.
0: You just mentioned a little while ago the fact that you or the book is good for scholars, but it's also written to engage students and more general audiences. Before we talk about that, there is a, a concept in there that we, you touched on briefly earlier, but I wondered if you wanted to unpack a little bit more. And that's the concept of racial silence. So what is that? How would you define it? And then how does it work to explain some of your findings from the analysis of the newspaper articles?
1: You know, I might not be the absolute first person to come up with this term. I think it has been probably used in other spaces to describe similar phenomena. Definitely researchers and sociologists coming before me have talked about similar sort of dynamics along the lines of, aversion or avoidance when it comes to how people engage in discourse about race. It definitely is something that I see. So racial silence is basically an outcome more so than a process. I would describe it as sort of an outcome and also an expectation or a norm, which is essentially the idea that overtly racial claims are devalued and dismissed in contemporary society. And I think this is an observation that aligns pretty well with colorblind racial ideology theories, with some of the work that's coming out, with like Jennifer Mueller's work on epistemology of ignorance, even people like Woody Doan, who have been writing about sort of racial politics and debates about racialized issues for a while now. It's essentially just that this is not only in a cumulative outcome, so racial silence is what I can observe in this debate, how we have this clearly racialized social issue, yet so little of the conversation is overtly racialized, and also the idea that overtly racialized claims are undesirable for both in terms of making claims of legitimacy for making claims of criticizing policies or, or efforts at social change and that at most maybe that's a smaller part of the argument so people were pretty comfortable recognizing oh and also there is this biased outcome that's happening too but that's like the third reason to legalize cannabis or to end the war on drugs And so I think racial silence is essentially, in a a sense, almost the opposite of racial consciousness. It's the obliteration or or the omission of racial consciousness. It's the idea that it's more important to conform to these preset terms of the debate. What I also saw was that there's almost sort of a hierarchy in terms of what can even be described and discussed within the bounds of racial silence. So particularly marginalized is discussing mechanisms and intentions. So any discussion of the the actual mechanisms, the interests or the practices of systemic racism and racial oppression are particularly marginalized even deeper. Anything that indicates that issues of racial inequality and racial discrimination are matters of, social arrangements and institutions rather than just individual bias, or even a a power reflexive concept of understanding how interests and power are wielded in these social issues, such as drug policy. All of those things are mitigated to sort of the fringes of the debate. I really anticipated that more of the debate would be about it overtly litigating the racial politics of the war on drugs and you know that was really what allowed me to sort of explain and better understand um how this outcome this counterintuitive outcome
0: uh why it existed i mean maybe this is a good place to turn to the concept that you pick up from michael schwalby sociological mindfulness and i in my own teaching of the sociological imagination i often go for back and forth on this. I know lots of people teach it in introduction to sociology, but that concept of imagination brings to mind the idea that we are creating things out of our whimsy, right? Imagination is about creativity. It's about things that aren't, don't exactly exist in the real world. At least that's how most people think of imagination. Um, I don't think Mills really minted in that way, but you know, I think part of your, the argument in your book is that, you know, using sociological mindfulness is a better kind of more concrete in some ways practice for developing a, a, a robust sociological consciousness for students, you know, faculty and, and others. So can you unpack how you use that term in, in the book and, and um, how it be used by students and others? Sure. So
1: from my perspective, um, you know, drawing on, on sort of the, the influential... Uh, reframing from from Michael Schwalbe, where he talks about sociological mindfulness, I really see it as moving from, you know, we can even go back to the famous uh, Marx quote about, you know, description versus change. That, you know, it's one thing, especially I think, you know, if you study something and you're saying, hey, this is a social problem, this is hurting people. And so much of our research for inequality scholars does that. I mean, we don't study these things for neutral reasons, because we just think it's fascinating. But because we're trying to identify the conditions and arrangements that are impacting people's lives. And so I think, without having that sense of the next sort of pragmatic step, and this is what I've even been thinking about, uh, including in in my more recent work on, on democracy, because obviously, grassroots democratic engagement has this piece of, of action and um, pragmatism baked into it, but just trying to come back to a place of like a very pragmatic sociology that's asking these questions about like, so what? I think this, so what question is so important and really pushing um, those who engage with sociological knowledge beyond just seeing it as a lens to view the world but seeing it as an impetus for changing our day-to-day practices. Anyone who um, reads sociological work, even just an undergraduate student who takes a couple sociology classes, and let's say they go in a totally different direction in their life, my hope is that sociology can uh, be a field that isn't just giving them little interesting tidbits of trivia Or, you know, ways to win a political debate with their family members, but it'll actually inform the ethical dilemmas that they're going to face out in the world. Sociological research and thinking can really give way to fatalism if it's not practical, if it doesn't have a pragmatic element. I mean, think about how much, you know, oftentimes we describe our research findings as like depressing, you know. Oh, it's a real, it's a real bummer. And it's like, okay, that's great. And that's important. And that's interesting. But let's get back to the so what I think that sociology should be uh, empowering. You know, I don't I don't want my students and, and my mentees and people that I work with in the community and my colleagues to get a sense of sort of fatalism that we're just sort of caught in this system that's self perpetuating. I think Ultimately, we have the potential for generating empirical grounded evidence that is, you know, based in the best possible um, ways that we can wrap our heads around reality that can actually empower us to change things. And obviously, I'm not the only person who, who wants to, like, claim this mantle, Um, And I think there is more of an interest and more of a push of sort of a civically engaged, practical sort of sociology, a sociology that is very pragmatic and in the insights it produces. But I want to make sure that, um, you know, for my first book and, and, you know, that if I have this little tiny platform from from Rutledge Press, that I'm going to uh, contribute to that vision of what sociology can be. And that's, kind of an important motivating force for me in in my teaching and research.
0: I want to to turn uh, as we, as we wrap up here, to your new work, I know you started this book uh, before your dissertation research. As you say, it has a, had a long gestation period, uh, but you're working now on a new project, or on a project on grassroots progressive organizations. And you hinted at this a little bit earlier when you're talking about your work on democracy. Can you tell us about that work and and where you're at in it and and uh, what you've what you've been doing? Absolutely. So um, this is my actual
1: dissertation. Uh, you know, I think I was pretty, I was a pretty masochistic grad student to an extent, which I, you know, is maybe not totally an uncommon characteristic that I was managing multiple projects. Um, so for my dissertation, I, I completed a, um, I believe it's about 16 month long ethnographic case study of progressive grassroots political organizations in the Northeast. Um, And essentially, I was interested in looking at groups that kind of uh, occupy an interesting space in politics and society. So um, I think um, we can start to already see the growth of progressive grassroots political parties and political organizations that are straddling the line between traditional social movements and traditional political parties. These are the types of parties that, you know, have been around for a long time. Oftentimes, I think they're dismissively seen as third parties or oftentimes independent parties. But I think of them much more as sort of these grassroots political organizations that um, can potentially serve as change agents in the uh, political, in the electoral system that can potentially bring a lot of Folks who are usually disenfranchised or marginalized from the, the traditional uh, electoral and political system into the fold of, of civic and political engagement that can present unorthodox or heterodox ideas into public debate. And that I think have maybe had an underrecognized influence on some of, some of the important social transformations um, that have taken place. And particularly what I was fascinated by that really motivated this case study is understanding that, you know, we have a a lot of really rich and in-depth information coming out of political science and political sociology, understanding um, on the large scale macro level, all of these institutional and policy-based mechanisms that produce racialized political inequality. But what I wanted to understand is what is the relationship between racial habits, the racial habits and racial consciousness of people who are engaged in these spaces that are potentially transformative, but also equally potentially capable of reproducing the status quo of, politi- of, of racialized political inequality. So just as, as an example Um, political scientists that have studied local politics have identified that there's still extreme disparities in even in local politics, even in community meetings, even in in these moments where we think, okay, here's where the community is going to show up and get involved. There's still all of these sort of passive barriers. There's habits, there's routines, there's norms that are shaping even those spaces. So I guess all that to say that Looking at how all those things collide in a real world case study, it it was really fascinating to me. And so the things that I really tried to identify and focus on is what's the relationship between racial habits and and the political strategies that organizations and and individual um, people who are participating in these organizations take particularly progressive organizations who have these explicit goals of things like social justice or even, you know, advancing the empowerment of um, marginalized groups or explicitly saying, you know, we we have these specific racial justice-oriented policies. Um, You know, how do they deal with that? And also, you know, how do people's personal histories, their socialization, their own narrative about themselves, how does that influence their political strategies? What are all these complex sources that are much more humanistic and much less like hyper rational? Um, How is that shaping people's political engagement? And then how can we start from there to start gaining some sort of pragmatic insights about how to do progressive grassroots politics in a way that actually leads to a more um, robust racial justice oriented set of practices. I really tried to think about how these insights can be beneficial for a general audience. And that's really how I'm, um, moving with this particular manuscript. So the stage that it's in right now is I am currently, I, you know, I've been meeting with publishers. Obviously it's a little bit easier to get the attention and ear of a publisher of publishers. Once you have already published a book, So, I guess there's really no question about whether or not I'm capable of writing a book. So, that was really nice. Once again, I feel incredibly lucky to be uh, writing about something that has such importance to things that are going on right now, because I think these questions of effective uh, grassroots democratic engagement are so key to unlocking some of the other bigger issues that we're all identifying and maybe feeling disempowered about. Um, And also I'll say as, as like a little bit of a teaser, um, I collected my data during the 2016 election. So I (laughs) happened to just stumble in, into one of the most contentious, really uh, anxiety inducing and uh, dramatic uh, periods in recent American political history. So the book is also informed by this sort of crisis uh, that was unfolding and how people who were engaged in these spaces responded as they dealt with these more pragmatic concerns and, and came up with um, different ways of effectively addressing or not um, the broader issues of, of um, you know getting people involved uh, creating uh, cross-racial, um, creating coalitions across racial and class boundaries. Um, you know, dealing with the internal racialized power dynamics of their own organization. So hopefully, I'll have that out. I want to say maybe like fall twenty twenty two. So maybe listeners can keep an eye out for that. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I'm really just grateful to be part of so many important conversations and to be positioned to do this kind of work. Can
0: you say a little bit more about the organizations that you studied?
1: So what I did was I essentially did my field work in three, basically centered on three different local chapters in the Northeast. Um, Like a lot of ethnographers, I had so much fun coming up with pseudonyms for towns and chapter names and and people like that is the one thing that makes me feel like a novelist for a second. Um, So that's kind of fun. But um, yeah, it it is essentially, you know, a type of of political party that I think is extremely active, has been extremely active, particularly in the wake of the uh, Trump presidency, and the so called resistance, and the push for Uh, more grassroots progressive representation Um, and even organizations that are kind of operating, like I said, kind of in these dual spheres of activism and electoral politics, which I think is, is an emerging mode of doing politics that is increasingly playing a role in our political contestations, you know, even bringing it back to what I've been saying about like these drug policy debates, you know, there has been more sort of grassroots community engagement from political uh, parties and organizations that have been been shaping those uh, contestations at the local level. So, I guess that's about as much as I can say about the the case study. But I think it's one that is going to have pretty wide interest, and that hopefully will provide some insights that obviously you know transcend the ca- the individual case itself.
0: Well, we will have to look out for that and maybe have you back on when, Absolutely. You say when the book is, you know, when the book is finished and, and ready for the world. Well, Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience about your research? Uh, where can folks uh, find you online? Sure. They want to follow your work and those sorts of things.
1: Um, so I'm probably most active publicly on Twitter. So it's just my name at Michael Rosino. Uh, my my personal website is Michaelrosino.com so I, I snapped up those IPS fortunately um, even though I'm sure there's I'm maybe the only person with that name. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I you know if anyone is interested in having me uh, you know do guest lectures, obviously, I love having these types of conversations. Um, I love having an excuse to just kind of nerd out sociologically so, Um, You know, I want to encourage anyone to kind of reach out to me if you're involved in any type of work that parallels this, maybe on the more uh, practitioner side. You know, I love those conversations. Um, You know, I would love to do um, guest lectures. Um, I really want to encourage people, if you do teach a class that relates to any of these topics I've been discussing, the book uh, Debating the Drug War is really focused for classroom use. It, It has a glossary. It has uh, a lot of historical and contemporary examples. There's discussion questions. And I guarantee you that if you assign the book, I will offer a, a, a virtual guest lecture if you reach out to me. So um, I just want to extend all those opportunities. Uh, and and um, Dan, I want to thank you so much for this, this great interview. Um, you know, your, your questions have been so thoughtful and engaged. And I'm just really happy to be here. I'm glad we got to have this conversation. Uh, so I, I really want to thank you so much for that.
0: Hey, it's it's uh, our pleasure. Always happy to feature really good research, uh, really interesting findings and work that's useful for uh, several audiences. So I appreciate you being here. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you.